Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Well, let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows us. Hey, looks like today we'll see England and France slug it out in the Hundred Years War. Now, I'm guessing most of you have probably heard of the Hundred Years War. And probably a lot of you know the trivia question, how long did the Hundred Years War last? Well, it actually lasted for 116 years, 1337 to 1453. But I'm guessing that many of you don't know what actually caused it, how it played out, and who actually won. And those are the things we want to look at today in this episode. So let's see what's going on. Before we can even understand the causes of the war, we have to look at some background. So let's start in England in January of 1327, 10 years before the war starts. The King of England at the time was Edward II, and he was pretty incompetent. His wife, Isabella, had a lover named Mortimer, and that couple, along with a group of English barons, decided to depose and then murder Edward II. And yeah, his murder is an entirely different story that I'm not going to get into. Anyway, Isabella and Mortimer proclaim the 15-year-old son of Isabella and Edward as the new king, Edward III. Now, Isabella and Mortimer actually hold real power, at least until 1330, when Edward takes the reins of government for himself. So that's what's going on in England. Meanwhile, over in France, in 1328, Charles IV of France, who was the last surviving son of Philip the Fair, died, and he died childless. With him ends the Capetian dynasty. Okay, now an assembly of French barons decided to exclude Isabella, and you say, well, what does she have to do with it? Well, Isabella was Charles's sister. So she was a daughter of Philip the Fair, which means her son, Edward III, King of England, was the nephew of Charles IV. So as I said, an assembly of French barons want to exclude her and her son from the French throne. Their argument is that no woman nor her son could succeed to the French monarchy. And French lawyers defend this position. They claimed the old Salic Law, which was a long, obsolete 6th century Germanic law code. They claim that's part of the fundamental law of France. These barons instead give the crown of France to Philip VI of Valois. He too is a nephew of Philip the Fair, but he's French. It's his assuming the throne in 1328, and he'll rule till 1350. That sets us up for the causes of the Hundred Years' War. The cause of the Hundred Years' War requires us to again backtrack a little. Now we go back to 1259. In that year, France and England signed the Treaty of Paris. In this treaty, the English king agreed to become, not just for himself, 
but for all his successors, vassal of the French crown for the Duchy of Aquitaine. The English claimed Aquitaine as an ancient inheritance. By the time of Philip VI, though, French policy had become strongly expansionist, and Philip VI is going to want to absorb Aquitaine into the Kingdom of France. Now, a year after Philip VI takes the throne, in 1329, Edward III pays homage to him for Aquitaine, and things seem to be going well. But then, in 1337, Philip, again, who wants to have full French jurisdiction in Aquitaine, simply confiscated it. Edward III was furious. He interpreted this action as a total violation of the Treaty of 1259. And that, he said, is a cause for war. On top of this, Edward argued that he was the eldest directly surviving male descendant of Philip the Fair, so he should be the King of France. In essence, Edward is rejecting the decision of the French barons that excluded him from the throne. Now, this argument of Edward's really makes a mess of the feudal order in France. The French vassals to Philip VI say, hey, wait a second, we can use this argument to increase our independent power. And some of the French vassals of Philip VI use this as an excuse to give their loyalty to Edward III. And that's one of the reasons this war lasts so long. It becomes a French civil war. Some of the French barons support Edward III and the later English monarchs to try to thwart the centralizing goals of the French crown. Other French barons, of course, support the French crown. Economic issues are also going to draw Flanders into this war. See, the wool trade between England and Flanders served as basically the cornerstone of both countries' economies. They were closely interdependent. But the thing is, Flanders was a fief of the French crown. So the Flemish aristocracy was sympathetic to the monarchy in Paris. But the wealthy Flemish merchants and cloth manufacturers who depended on English wool, they strongly supported the claims of Edward III because disruption of commerce with England totally threatened their prosperity. So they're going to get drawn in too. So, Edward is claiming the French throne because he's mad that Philip took Aquitaine and the Flemish are going to get involved, so the war starts in 1337. Now understand, first off, it's going to be fought mainly in France and the Low Countries, and it's not going to be one continuous war for 116 years. It's going to be a whole series of random sieges sometime, of cavalry raids. So it's going to be like an on and off fight throughout over a century. During the war's early stages, England had a lot of success. At the Battle of Crecy in northern France in 1346, the English score a huge victory with their longbows. England used the longbow while the French liked to employ the crossbow. The longbow had a greater range. And even though the crossbow was deadly accurate at short range, the longbow could be fired a lot quicker, between three and five times as fast. 
And so the English, with these great longbowmen, score a huge victory. On top of this, this battle seized the use of cannon, which really didn't tip the, the side one way or the other, but it is considered probably the first use of cannon, of artillery, in the West. And if nothing else, it created panic on the battlefield. This great victory was followed up by others. One of the more commonly known ones to come next is Edward III's son, Edward the Black Prince, using the same tactics of employing English longbows to smash the French at Poitiers. Of course, we also have the classic Battle of Agincourt in 1415, where the English king Henry V gained the field against hugely superior French numbers. Henry V, like Shakespeare, the Band of Brothers speech. He didn't really say that. Shakespeare made it up. Anyway, my point is, the English are winning a lot of victories and a lot of major battles. And really, by 1419, the English had advanced to the walls of Paris. But you know what? The cause is not lost for France. Even though England has a number of initial victories, France is still not out of it. What's going to save them and lead them to victory? Let's find out. Ultimately, the French victory rests pretty heavily on the actions of this obscure French peasant girl named uh, Joan of Arc. Yeah, I'm sure you've all heard of her. Her vision and work revived the French fortunes, and that's what's going to lead France to victory. Okay, The historical fact of this matter is She's the one who saves the French monarchy. She was born in 1412. Well-to-do peasants were her parents. She grew up in a very religious household. During adolescence, she began to hear voices. And she later said these voices belonged to St. Michael, St. Catherine, and St. Margaret. In 1428, these voices told her, very urgently, that the Dauphin, the uncrowned King Charles VII had to be crowned, and the English had to be expelled from France. So Joan goes to the French court, and she persuades Charles to reject the rumors that were flying around that he was illegitimate, and secured his support for her relief of the besieged city of Orleans. The crazy thing here is that not only was Joan able to get in to see the Dauphin, and not only did he and his advisors listen to her, what's totally amazing is the swiftness with which they were convinced. See, French fortunes had been so low for so long that Charles and France were looking for any kind of miracle to save the country. So Charles allowed Joan to accompany the army that was preparing to raise the English siege at Orleans. Now in the meantime, Joan, who herself was illiterate, dictated this letter calling on the English to withdraw. Let me quote here. King of England, do right in the King of Heaven's sight. Surrender to the maid, meaning her, sent hither by God, the King of Heaven, the keys of all the good towns you have taken and laid waste in France. She comes in God's name to establish the blood royal, ready to make peace if you agree to abandon France and repay what you have taken. And you, archers, comrades in arms, gentles and others, 
who are before the town of Orleans, retire in God's name to your own country. That's a pretty strongly worded letter to send to the English. Now Joan gets to Orleans on April 28, 1429. She's 17. She knows nothing about warfare. Her belief was that if she could keep the French troops from swearing and going to brothels, victory would be theirs. On May 8th, the English, who were weakened by disease and lack of supplies, withdrew from Orleans. Ten days later, Charles VII was crowned King of France. And these two events, the breaking of the siege at Orleans and the crowning of Charles VII, these two events mark the turning point in the war. Joan's presence at Orleans and her unshakable belief in her mission enhanced her reputation and strengthened the morale of the French army. Unfortunately for her, in 1430, England's allies, the Burgundians, captured Joan, and they sold her to the English. The English handed her over to the ecclesiastical authorities for trial, and the French court did not intervene. Now look, the English wanted Joan out of the way for political reasons, because she was rallying the French. But the charge that's going to be put against her is sorcery. Which persecution was increasing in the 1400s, and this seemed like a really good charge to hit her with. So in 1431, the ecclesiastical court condemned Joan as a heretic. And what happened to heretics at this time? Well, Joan was burned at the stake. Of course, in 1456, a new trial will rehabilitate Joan. And in 1920, the Catholic Church canonized her as a saint. The relief of Orleans, though, stimulated French pride and rallied the French resources. So as the war drags on, the continual loss of life and the tremendous cost caused the demand for an end to the war to increase in England. English clergy and intellectuals started pressing more and more for peace, and the English Parliament started opposing additional war grants more and more. Slowly, over the next years, the French reconquered Normandy and finally ejected the English from Aquitaine, and by the time the war comes to an end in 1453, only the town of Calais remained in English hands. So France wins the war by driving the English out. But what are the consequences here? Well, for the French, even though they won, they lost thousands of soldiers and civilians. This is coming after the plague. So this additional loss means there's a huge loss of population in France. On top of this, because the fighting took place in France, we have hundreds of thousands of acres of rich farmland being laid to waste. The economy of France is in shambles. Now even though fighting really didn't happen in England, the English economy was also in shambles. The war cost the English over five million pounds, an unbelievable sum of money at the time. They too had losses in manpower through their soldiers. Furthermore, the English government, to try to help pay for this war, kept raising taxes. So by the end of the war, the English economy is in a huge slump. 
And speaking of these taxes, one of the positive effects the war had on England was what it did to the English Parliament. You see, Edward III needed so much money at the start of the war that he summoned Parliament frequently. And not only did he summon the great barons and bishops, the lords, but he also summoned the knights of the shires and the burgesses from the towns. And the idea of Parliament meeting frequently became a habit. These knights and burgesses, or these commoners, as they came to be called, would of course become the House of Commons, but they started to realize they held the country's purse strings. And in 1341, Edward III approved a parliamentary statute that required all non-feudal levies to have parliamentary approval. Non-feudal levies, that means taxes. This basically has the king acknowledging that he can't tax without Parliament's consent. So this really helps representative assemblies in England, the English Parliament. As for France, there was no national assembly, and one did not develop. The French monarchy found the idea of representative assemblies thoroughly distasteful. So France doesn't have a national assembly which means the French monarchy is going to continue their absolute type rule for a number of centuries to follow. Finally, in both countries, we see a tremendous growth of nationalism, that feeling of unity and identity that bound the people together. And even though this long war is said and done, Britain and France are still going to be enemies for quite a while longer. But how they patch things up and turn into allies, well, that's another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you like this episode, please tell your friends about it. And check out the other episodes, too. And I look forward to talking with you again in our next episode.